0: Thank you, Annette. Um, glad that each one of you is here. Uh, if you haven't, if you're new here to Harbor City or visiting for the first time today, my name is Doug Swaggerty, and I've been serving as a as an interim pastor uh, since the beginning of March. So a little over four months, we've uh, been in that arrangement. A little over five months, I guess, uh, whatever that amounts to. But. Um, um, We're thankful that today, as Annette mentioned, we're going to be voting on a candidate that the search committee has put forward. And we got a chance to hear him preach last week. He talked in a sermon entitled, Three Marks of a Missional Church. And he took us through the passage in Acts, which talks about the church at Antioch. And he said, missional churches are, are churches that are involved in evangelism and discipleship and service. And so today... I wanted to just boot off of what Omar was talking about last week and talk about another example of what it means to be missional and exactly where that word comes from. I actually turned it into an adverb, which many people were very impressed with this morning, living missionally. What does that mean? You know, we use that word mission in all sorts of contexts. It's not, uh, it's not just a Christian word. If you are part of a big company, often they'll, uh, they'll have you understand and, and contribute to their mission statement uh, for that organization and, and just the marketplace, generally speaking. 20, 30 years ago, one of the things that was really popular in, in books was for encouraging people to develop personal mission statements. And it's just an idea, the idea of trying to understand what your particular unique goal in life might be. When we use the word missional, or use the word missionally, we're not quite talking about that. We're talking about more like what, when we use the word to talk about Molly, when she's going over to Kazakhstan to be a missionary. And the origin of that word, in in terms of when it really became popular, uh, goes back to a man by the name of Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin lived in the 20th century. He, He almost lived the whole 20th century. He was born in 1909, and he died in 1998. So here's a man who lived in all 10 decades of of the 20th century. He was a British uh, pastor and missionary. And he ended up, after his education, spending most of his career being a missionary in the country of India. And he wrapped up his time in India where he not only had done mission work there, but he had also uh, written several books and been involved in several ecumenical efforts while he was there. When he came back and retired to Great Britain in 1974, uh, he realized that Great Britain in 1974 was different than the Great Britain he had left 30 or 40 years prior to that. And so he, he began to understand that if he was really going to spend his remaining years ministering in the context of Great Britain, that he had to start looking at Great Britain the same way that a missionary looks at a culture and country that they go to that's different than their own. When Molly and others go out in mission work, when Molly goes to Kazakhstan, it's not enough to go over there and just speak as an American with American values and speak English and all that kind of thing. We know that that's not how you do it as a missionary. You gotta learn the language, you have to learn the culture, you have to learn idioms, you have to understand the things that motivate people and the things that uh, aren't so motivating to people. You mix all those things together and you become effective as a missionary. You live missionally in that context. And Leslie Newbigin said when he came back to Great Britain, we've got to look at Great Britain that way now. Uh, All the thing, we used to call it, you know, highly influenced by Christian thought. We might have called it a Christian nation at one point but now the culture has shifted so much that we can't just assume that everyone knows what we're talking about that we can take for granted the fact that the gospel means the same thing to them as it means to us and certainly if Britain in 1974 was that way when you look at United States of America almost 50 years later we can say we're we've, we're basically in the same place friends uh, as we as we take our understanding of god 's word and try to apply it to people in our community in our city in our culture, we can 't make assumptions that well, this is a Christian nation, so everyone 's going to understand what we 're talking about. We have to live missionally we have to live with with that kind of attitude and that kind of heart. So where can we go to find a good model of this, and how can we know? if we really are living missionally. And that's why I wanna take us this morning to an account in Acts chapter 17. It's a lengthy uh, passage of scripture that we're going to read this morning, but I want you to bear with me because it's the story of Paul when he went to Athens, to Greece. Uh, He went to the city of Athens and there in the city of Athens, he finally made his way up to where all the philosophers would uh, talk and, and think through new ideas and he shared the gospel there. But keep in mind uh, how Paul is approaching this city and how he's approaching these people. Acts 17, we're going to begin at verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. And then parenthetically, Luke says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. I'll come back to that. Uh, Paul says in verse 22, it says that Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of this very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, rather he Himself as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since God, or, or since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold and silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He was given, has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And, as Paul, and at that, Paul left the council, and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Demaris, and a number of others. May God bless that word to us uh, today. A long passage, but as I said, it's one of my favorite passages. It's been one of my favorite passages for a long time, but really for different reasons more lately than it was initially. Um, I did my undergraduate work and did graduate work in the whole area of, of philosophy. And so when I looked at, when I look at a passage like Acts 17, it's just very fascinating to me. I, I kind of majored in ancient and medieval philosophy. And so the interaction of the gospel with, with Greek thought is something that that is, is a, a very interesting study. And I was always kind of drawn to this passage to see how Paul exactly uh, addressed those issues and how he uh, how he we went about sharing the gospel in that particular context. I was really sort of locked in uh, to what he was saying. Um, and as, as we read this thing from Luke, I may be a little bit sensitive. I told you I'd come back to verse 21. Luke's a doctor, so he's a very practical kind of guy. Uh, when in verse 21, he said, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It sounds an awful lot like first-century trash talk to me. I think he's dissing (laughs) philosophers at that point, and I may be a little bit sensitive on that, but we've all heard those stories about when you graduate from college, uh, different professions ask different questions. So scientists ask the question why things happen, and engineers ask how things happen, and economists ask the question how much does it cost. And philosophers all ask the question, do you want fries with that order? You know, that's kind of the, the standing joke that we're subjected to. Uh, but here Paul meets these people at the Areopagus who were very learned in their own, in their own culture, in their, in their views of philosophy, and their views of the world. And he comes at them with a particular attitude. You know, we talk here about how the gospel changes everything. And when we talk about that, we mean that it it changes people's lives, it changes structures in society, it changes communities, it changes the world. But first, it changes us, you see. First, it has to change us. And the further I go along in life and keep coming back to Acts chapter 17, I find myself equally as concerned with what he says as how he says it. It's not just truth, but it's also caring. And that's what I want you to see this morning, what it means uh, to live missionally. How will we know if we've been changed, if we've captured Paul's heart? And there are four signs that I want you to see from this passage. We'll go through them real quickly, but four signs that you're living missionally, that, that you're, you've caught this idea and understanding of what it means to live in mission with other people. The first is that our eyes will be opened. If we, if we will be missional, if we know that our eyes are open. Now, for Paul, it was open to a couple of things. One was being opened to seeing idolatry. You noticed in the passage, he talks about how he kind of went on this journey when he went into Athens and he went to the place where all the idols were and he studied the idols and he even memorized one of the inscriptions that was on one of, of the idols. I, I always envision. Uh, in that context, the Agora, which is the marketplace in, in Greek culture, that in the Agora, maybe at one end or the other, there would be this gathering place where the local idols would be. And you could actually go and look at the idols, and they, they were probably marked out, this idol's for this, this idol's for that. People would would worship those idols. They, they would be what we might call superstitious about those idols. But the, here's the problem for us, friends, there are no parks like that today for us. You can't say, I need to go to, if I need to learn San Diego or I need to learn uh, El Cajon or I need to learn uh, Encinitas or whatever city you're talking about, there's not usually one place you can go and, and get all those clues, uh, see all the idols. It's a little more difficult than that because uh, we, we still have idolatry, but it comes in different shapes and different sizes. David Foster Wallace was a college professor who gave a a pretty famous commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, and he started that commencement speech by telling a little story about two young fish that were swimming along beside each other, and as they were swimming along in the lake, a bigger fish came by, and as the bigger fish passed them going the other direction he said to the littler fish, how's the water today, boys? And the two little fish, they kept swimming, not saying anything, until finally one turned to the other and said, what the heck is water? What the heck is water? And David Foster Wallace was making the point that in a very real sense, we all have become those frogs in the kettle, you know, the, the whole thing about how, how we are in the kettle when the water's cool. And then the, when the heat's turned up, we don't really notice the difference. And he's saying in that context, and I think what, what we would say from God's word is that it's so easy for us to get enmeshed in a culture that we fail to see the distinctives of the culture. And so Paul took time when he went to Athens to really understand what made Athens tick, what made Athenians tick. And if we're if we're living missionally, uh, our eyes will be open to see those things in our neighbors and in the people we work with, the people in our community. We'll understand what drives them and we'll begin to think of ways that the gospel might speak to those issues in their lives. I think also though, Paul was, uh, his eyes were open to see new places of opportunity. And one of his epistles, I think it's the book of Colossians, he actually asked people to pray for him that God would give to him open doors of opportunity. Paul was always praying for that, open doors of opportunity. And so he was always looking for places and opportunities to share the gospel. And in this text, uh, if, you, if you caught it at the beginning of it, it said that uh, he didn't just start at the Areopagus, at this place where all the brilliant people were. He started in the synagogue, and then he moved to the marketplace. And gradually then he was brought up Uh, to the the Areopagus, and it was a natural arena for Paul to minister in. He saw it as an opportunity for the gospel. Each and every place that he went, he was looking for those opportunities. If we're living missionally, our eyes will be open to that. But secondly, if we're living missionally, uh, our heart will be broken. Our hearts are going to be broken if we're living missionally. Paul begins, or Luke begins this passage in verse 16 by saying that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. These words that are translated greatly distressed come from a a Greek word which um, talks about just a uh, a heart-rending perspective and ability to enter into the pain of other people. He was grieved. Uh, He was seized with that grief. Uh, there was a depth of feeling there that was significant for Paul. John Stott has once said that the reason we can't speak the way that Paul speaks is because we can't see the way Paul sees. And the reason we can't see the way Paul sees is because we don't feel the way Paul feels. When you confront culture, when you confront things in your own life, but in the lives of your neighbors and friends and people you work with that really go counter to God's word, maybe bring dishonor to God? Um, Is your heart grieved by that? Or do you just play along? Does it just just roll right off you? Paul wasn't going to let that happen. He had the grief. He had had the brokenness of heart because he knew that these people were sheep without shepherd. Bob Pierce, who co-founded World Vision, uh, was famous for his prayer, Lord, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. Write that down and pray that prayer. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. I think that will do so much for helping us know how to respond in different situations. Let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. I think the third thing, third sign that we are getting it, that we're living missionally, is that our words will be gracious. Um, I've spent time going through in other contexts the, the 20 verses or so here that and this long message of Paul and pulling out all sorts of interesting tidbits of what he's saying and what he's not saying and arranging those and so forth and so on. But what I want you to see this morning is not, don't, don't get into the weeds of that. I just want you to stay hovering over it a little bit. And realize that as Paul addresses these people, there's compassion that's coming out and there's graciousness that's coming out. And when he talks about uh, seekers, he actually calls them seekers. He says, you're, you're seeking God. God God set all these things up so that you might seek him and might be found by him. and <laughs> You might find him because he's not far from us, he says. And so often I think we're, uh, unfortunately, we're, far more negative about people who aren't believers, who aren't Christians than what Paul was there in the city of Athens. Uh, When you talk about others, how do you talk about them? I've coined a word, I I don't think it's in the dictionary, but I I talk in some context about the rudening of culture. And and does that make sense what I mean? Culture is just getting more and more rude. And I just use the word rudening, rudening of culture. I think in some ways it started back probably around 50 years ago with talk radio uh, when people could get on the radio and, and say things where they weren't face to face with people and, and the talk became much more angry. And then when, when uh, the internet exploded and now we can go onto the internet and say pretty much whatever we wanna say, we can even use screen names that don't identify ourselves. So we can let all of our frustrations out in, in those kinds of contexts and some of the most vicious and uh, horrible things are said in those contexts. There are groups online that I'm involved with that are Christian groups, where, frankly, I'm embarrassed by some of the things that are shared. There's groups I'm involved in that are exclusively pastor's groups that I read some stuff this week, and I said, boy, I'm glad it's exclusive to pastors because I wouldn't want any of you to read what I I read. And I think that breaks the heart of God. When we talk about others, the way that we treat each other, uh, even in that kind of a context, do we talk with grace? Are our words gracious uh, toward others? But also when we talk to them, are our words gracious? He treated them with respect. It just kind of permeates the passage. He he stays on point, but he doesn't go into some kind of esoteric theological way of attacking their philosophical premises. You know, it's, it's not up here that he's talking to them. He's trying to talk to their heart, and he's trying to be as gracious as he can in that context. He tries to find the talking points. You have this idol of the unknown God. Let me talk to you about the God that is, the God that you can know, the God that wants to be known by you. He, he looks for those talking points and he connects the dots and he even tries in some ways to create what I call third categories. I think that's one of the most, uh, one of the most um, challenging things we can do as Christians is create third categories. And what I'd simply mean by that is that in, in our culture and in the world we find ourselves in, Everyone is trying to squeeze everyone else into one of two alternatives. You're this or you're that. And then we shout at each other from the extremes. And it's very fascinating to see that that's nothing new. That's what Jesus had to confront when he walked on on earth and and, uh, in the gospel accounts. There's all sorts of times when he was, when people were attempting uh, to get at Jesus by forcing him to one extreme or the other. And invariably what Jesus would do is he'd come up with a third category and he'd say, you're both wrong. And then often he would disappear and leave everyone scratching and going, man, I thought we had him, you know. We thought we had had him cornered and somehow he eluded us because he's saying, it's not this or that, there's a third way. There's a gospel way. There's a way of God showing his love for us that upholds truth, but also upholds mercy, and he finds that way, and he and he presents that to people. And it's disarming for those with whom he connected. Our hearts will be gracious, and then finally, the last thing I wanted to mention was that our message will be focused. And here, what I simply mean is this: that uh, Paul focused on divine appointments. He focused on networks of relationships, um, but he left behind a lot of peripheral issues. He just tried to make the connection with the people and lead them right up to the cross and the resurrection because that was the most central thing. And I think Paul knew, he, wasn't, he, he was a very intelligent man himself. He knew where the push would come from. It wasn't talking about morality. It wasn't talking about whether there was a divine being. They argued about that kind of thing all the time on the Areopagus. Where Paul was going to get the pushback was when he mentioned that, uh, by the way, in our faith, uh, the leader was raised from the dead. And he saves it for the punchline at the very end, but everything leads up to that. And it was focused on declaring that God proved the truth of everything about the gospel by raising up Jesus Christ from the dead. And it says that as soon as he said that, uh, when they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered... Uh, but others said, we want to hear more, I'll hear you again on this particular subject. Paul did a great job here, I think, in terms of living missionally among those people in Athens and sharing the gospel in a sensitive way that was listening to them and and uh, addressing them in their areas of need with compassion. Uh, but even in those cases, we can't expect everyone to respond. When we do it perfectly, we can't expect everyone to respond. Uh, in, in the way that we would like for them to. Even our Lord Jesus, when he would share the truth, often it was, it was a time where the crowds would would go away and thin down because he would say hard things and they weren't ready to hear those hard things. Um, we don't have to worry about results. That's really up to the Lord. But if we determine to live missionally, if we determine to have our eyes opened and our hearts broken and, our, and graciousness with our words, and and focus on the main points of our message, we can find that God will take it from there. In Jeremiah 29, verse 7, the prophet is talking to Israelites who were exiled, which simply means uh, by God's judgment, they were taken off to another country. Jeremiah prophesied during that time, the country of Assyria, and it was a hard time for them, and it would have been easy for them in that context to not live missionally. It would have been easy for them just to continually rail against the godlessness of that country, uh, the godlessness of that empire, all of the things that were wrong. But Jeremiah the prophet, through the Lord, said to them, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I, um, I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers you too will prosper. He's telling his people, the people of Israel, uh, to live missionally wherever you might be. Uh, It makes a difference in our neighborhood, our workplace, our school, our community. This isn't just how we as pastors operate, it's how we all operate. Are we willing to take those steps? I want to close with a story that you may uh, have heard before, probably many of you had. In the 2004 Olympics, there was this rifleman had to throw that in. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> if, if, if you're new here today, you, you won't get that joke. But last week, Omar and his sermon told this wonderful story about an Olympic rifleman and and uh, and it went on and on. And, and the funny thing was, that like the month earlier, I told the story, and I went on and on with the story. So he was trying to impress all of you, and you all were going, he missed, he cross-fired, you know, you're all thinking that. Um, but, you, you know, get to the end, and let's move on, because you all knew the end, you knew the punchline. Uh, so anyway, we had fun this week talking about that. There were actually polls out there, who told the story better? Was it Doug out in the parking lot, or was it Omar uh, in, his, uh, in his sermon last Sunday? Uh, So we had fun with that. But here's a story that you may have also heard uh, before. It's a story about a man who one day was out uh, walking early in the morning on the beach. And as he walked on the beach, it had been a day where overnight, the the surf, the tide had brought up a lot of starfish that were left stranded on the beach. Uh, Just hundreds, thousands of starfish that were stranded on the beach. And as the man walked along the beach and tried to avoid stepping on the starfish, he came upon a little boy who was picking up starfish and throwing them back into the water. And the man said, what are you trying to do here? And the little boy said, well, I'm trying to save these, these fish. And the man looks at him and he says, there's thousands of these fish. What good are you going to be able to do for all of these starfish? And the little boy had one in his hand and he looked at it and he goes, I may not be able to save them all, but it's going to make a difference for this one. And he threw it into the water. Friends, so often that's what living missionally is about. The way this story ends, it says that those on the Areopagus sneered at Paul, but it also says that some of the people became followers and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. What Paul did that day didn't save everyone, but it was meaningful for Dionysius and Demarius. And friends, that's what we're called to do, just one by one, make that impact on people with the love of Christ, living missionally with hearts that are are broken by the things that break his heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you make it so simple for us that you don't uh, give us the burden of converting the world. You just give us the challenge to live missionally, uh, to live in a context that doesn't know the truth and to graciously tell the truth. And Father, we pray that you would give us truth and you would give us tears. Because if we are going to represent you, we need both. And may, from our truth and our tears, we see people like Dionysius and Damaris who come to know you and trust in you.